you know, one thing that has been consistent all the way through is I've always had an enormous respect for how incredibly dedicated artists are and how they've committed their lives to a belief in what they're producing. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you're looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This additive glitter can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. The small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Watatsuwaru Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josuai Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it because these tools speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is Sam Davidson, director and owner of Davidson Galleries in Seattle, Washington for nearly five decades. Davidson Galleries houses 18,000 works on paper dating back to the 15th century, and an extensive collection of contemporary prints. The name Davidson Galleries might be familiar to dedicated listeners, as it comes up often as the very first place I ever worked in contemporary printmaking. We talk about Sam's early days driving around the U.S. selling prints on the road, selling work which spans centuries, highlights from the last 50 years, and what he's going to do next. So, without further ado, sit back. Relax and prepare to go back to the beginning with Sam Davidson. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Very well, Miranda. It's been a long time since we've seen one another and worked together. I know. I'm so happy that you've agreed to come on because I don't know how many people know this, but there would be no podcast without you. You gave me my first shot as a barely ink dry master's degree student and it was working with you that made me fall in love with contemporary printmaking well you took the bull by the horns very quickly and the position that you were in allowed for 
some wonderful travel and involvement with print communities around the world, whether it was in Russia or Japan or wherever it happened to be. I thought that you made wonderful use of the opportunity to develop that department. And thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. So I'm excited to be a part of sharing your story and the story of the gallery with the audience that I've built through the podcast in the last four years. And before we jump into that, would you just let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure. I'm the owner and director of Davidson Galleries, which is a now a print gallery. Had it been more broad for a certain period of time in terms of handling sculpture and painting as well. But ultimately, I've come back to focus on works on paper, particularly prints. And I'm located, or we're located, or the gallery's located in Seattle, in the old of the city. And we've moved around different places in the area and reinvented the gallery's direction and location multiple times but it's still alive and well and and now bringing wonderful prints, continuing to bring wonderful prints to the public through exhibition, catalogs, print fairs, and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. And where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I grew up really in the Seattle area with a lot of links to the East Coast. Family on both sides involved artists, more the women than the men, had either painted or did watercolor. My mother worked with Teeny in Rockport, and my grandmother both were painters. And so that was where it really began, being aware of it and the trips to museums and, and so on developed sort of subconsciously an interest. And then when I went away to school, I went to Wesleyan in Middletown, Connecticut. And that was where the I took the deep dive. I Instead of using all my book money to buy the books that I was supposed to, <laughs> I bought my first print from Ferdinand Roten Galleries, who was a gallery based in Baltimore that toured campuses and art centers and museums presenting one and two day exhibitions where they would put out this array of prints, both contemporary and antique on tables and invite the public or the students, depending which location it was, to peruse these things. They were all labeled and the representative who accompanied the collection would answer questions about either the artist or the medium or what additioning meant or some of the terms associated and so on. And so after I bought my first print, that became the slippery slope, which went on further. I got my master's in art history at the University of Massachusetts. And when I finished that, I approached Ferdinand Roden Galleries and whether they needed another representative. And they did and took me on and I traveled for them for two years all over the country, particularly the Western half. And that consisted of you drive a station wagon loaded with portfolios of prints 
from one museum or art center to another, putting on these shows. And the inventory, as you sold things, was replenished from Baltimore by air. So you might have a show starting at nine o'clock. And before that, you'd have to go to the airport, get the replacement prints, integrate them into the collection. And, and so you would be able to go on to the next location. Some of the travel was a little dicey, either in terms of weather or whether you felt secure having all that inventory in your station wagon. So in some cases, you'd lug it into the room you were sleeping in just to make sure it didn't get ripped off during the night. But after working on the road for them for a couple of years, I was brought back to the main office in Baltimore to assist the directors of the gallery and be in charge of inventory control and supplying and picking inventory from the gallery selection and sending it out to all these traveling collections. There were 10 traveling collections all over the country that also went into Canada as well. And I also got to produce the catalogs that the gallery sent out on an annual basis. So it gave me a wonderful amount of experience. At the end of that period in 1973, my brother, who also had worked for them, took over my territory when I got off the road. We left Roten Galleries to go to Seattle to set up our own version of the Ferdinand Roten traveling exhibitions. And so we created that, and um, that's sort of how things evolved. I moved the gallery down to Pioneer Square rather quickly because my brother had taken on the frame shop that we had taken on. And I, it was down in the basement of where we currently have the gallery. And so from then on, we moved multiple places. And as I said before, reconstructed both physically and the way the gallery operated and focused as I moved eight different times. Yeah. So that's essentially the nutshell of what's happened with the gallery. We've been in the current location since 1986. And, and I think maybe it'd be good to explain, when you say the basement of where you are now, people might be getting a little bit of the wrong idea of what that looks like. It's not a typical basement. It's the no, it's Seattle not. Underground, right? It is the Seattle Underground. Seattle's main streets and main commercial district was actually one floor below the current level. And there were storefronts and there were other businesses down there with us when we moved there antique shops, restaurants, and so on. So it wasn't like you were in some <laughs> doer place. It was a quite lively area um, for about a year after we got there. Yeah. And then the restaurant that had been sort of providing a lot of the income for the landlord or landlords decided he wanted to move and so on. So we all needed to find new locations and that began the sequence of yeah. I, I'm just so struck with this image of you driving across the country, station wagon full of prints, going from place to place. And of course, this is before GPS, cell phones. So I'd love to maybe hear a bit more of the details of that experience in the sense of, did you know you had this, everything was planned ahead of time and you just would open mm -hmm. your 
atlas to figure out how to get there and hope that there wasn't construction along the way? We did. All the promotion of the event was done from Baltimore. So we had this schedule. We had to be on a certain date and a certain time. And it was fairly tightly scheduled. So they, in Baltimore, they didn't have a clue about the mountain ranges and things that you were going to have to deal yeah. with. And so you would have barely enough time to get to the next location and get set up and so on. And if the weather was inclement, which often happens in the West, it made it even that much more exciting or dangerous. So it was, <laughs> it was a definitely an adventure being on the road. For that, I mean, I remember driving from El Paso to Albuquerque, and it was dusk, and uh, these shapes I could see ahead of me on the road, and but I kept going, and I realized in a few seconds that I was in the middle of a herd of cattle that were crossing the road, and I just barely didn't hit one oh of them. Oh, my gosh. So it was weird little things. It was so incredibly beautiful out there. So you know, the reward was the context was incredible. And you met wonderful people. And the contacts there often took you to see special things that were in that area. So it was a mixture of wild times. Yeah. I just have this image of a of a station wagon hitting a poor cow and just prints just <laughs> flying into the air. Exactly. The road yeah. littered just, with antique treasures. <laughs> and they it. wouldn't even appreciate them. <laughs> <laughs> just wasted on some cows. <laughs> <laughs> and so you said when you started the gallery, it was 1973. Right. And the model was going to be the same, right? You were planning on doing these traveling road shows exactly we'd have a the the gallery itself would have sort of a sampling of things in it and the public could come in and so on but the main revenue stream needed to come from these traveling exhibitions so and we did our obviously at that point we were doing our promotion so that it was a full-time thing for sure but as soon as we moved out of the basement with <laughs> this regular street level or above then we started doing regular exhibitions and one thing that it inspired that was the seattle art museum used to do an international invitational print show and they stopped doing it and so that i asked them if it would be okay if i took that on since it was a print or devoted exhibition and they said sure and so we started the northwest invitational we called it footprint mm. because we thought if we restricted the size to a manageable size for shipping and so on it would really be helpful and people really responded so for two or three years we did that and we the world print organization had been doing some wonderful big exhibitions all over and they agreed to let me have their mailing list to publicize our our event. And it really drew a tremendous response from all over. The one thing that I hadn't counted on was how much time it was going to take to return things at the end of the exhibition. Yeah. <laughs> Packing everything, getting up at five in the morning to pack the next batch to go out. So it was a wonderful thing, though. It made us known to artists all over 
which served us well as we gradually did more of those footprint shows. And now that sort of began it all, but it was largely a regional awareness that was created initially. And we worked closely with local and regional artists at, at that point, mostly. And then, and then a variety of things. Yeah. Occurred. And at this point, was the gallery showing just prints, just works on paper? Were you also doing paintings in the early days? At that point, when we were doing the footprint, it was above a bar called the Ball the Bay Bicycle Shop. And we were had the upstairs, and that was just prints, everything to do with prints. But gradually, things evolved. We got involved with the, the Goodwill Games and did an exhibition associated with that. The work was flown over. Russia had just opened up, and so... The artists were anxious to have exposure in this country, and we did a wonderful exhibition called Meeting, as in meeting the artists. And the work was flown over in the when the artists were brought over for the Goodwill Games. It was a they provided the transportation, but it was a wonderful way to become aware of the artists there. And I in turn went and traveled to Russia and ultimately to Tashkent and put together some exhibitions. And these were paintings and sculpture. Mm. We had a different space by then. Well, I mean, it just, it seems like it's just been such a beautiful way for me, definitely through the work that I've done with you and, it, and hearing your stories of even the earlier days as a vehicle to connect with people. You know, you, you get to do these projects with these artists across the world and one of the things you get from that is you get to know people and meet people that you would you never would have an excuse to go visit them or sit and break bread with them under any other circumstance. Absolutely. It was a wonderful entree. There were people in the Seattle area, Kay Bickford, who was in, instrumental with working with Madame Cheng. When China opened up, we did a series of exhibitions. And it was actually, we had the first exhibition of contemporary Chinese painting after it opened up. And that was just a huge, wonderful opportunity. That's so, beautiful. you know, these were paintings. And so we were fully engaged with all media at that point. And I can't remember, were you there when we did the wood engraving invitational? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think I wasn't there for the first one. Uh -huh. And then we brought it back during my tenure at Davidson, and that was huge. <laughs> it was wonderful. You got to know all these artists from all over the world who were working in that medium, and some wonderful relationships went on from there. These ex international or invitational exhibitions afforded us such an incredible opportunity to evaluate all these artists, and the ones that we were particularly drawn to, we would approach for, as you know, representation or solo exhibitions or individual exposure and it was just you couldn't ask for a better way to get to see a lot of work in the concentrated period. So in the whole process of the gallery I know it's gone through a lot of phases it's evolved at what point what was the largest number of prints you had on site at one time so people kind of get a sense of the scope of what Davidson was? Because I know it's ebbed and flowed throughout the years, but at the highest number of prints, how many antique and modern contemporary do you think you had? 
Well, you probably, right now we have about 18,000 pieces of paper. And that doesn't really include some of things squirreled away <laughs> uh, in various places for various reasons. But yeah, it's a lot to look after and trying to keep track of. I'm working with a staff that is so committed to a, a, a better system <laughs> than whatever I grew up with. So we're in a constant battle of me just being casual about record keeping and they're saying that just doesn't work with all the things we're trying to keep track of to do the catalogs, to travel to the print fairs, to do this and that. And so it's an old person like me <laughs> and a young, digitally oriented, educated staff. So it's a, a constant adventure in getting trying to be brought into the current times. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear you speak to a little bit the importance between the relationships between dealers and artists, you know, having worked with many artists, as you say, having sort of more casual relationships, like just through an invitational, but then also having these more ones in depth. How you has know, this, yeah, shaped your experience as an art dealer? You know, one thing that has been consistent all the way through is I've always had an enormous respect for how incredibly dedicated artists are and how they've committed their lives to a belief in what they're producing. And that that's just an incredible thing, the sacrifices they make to follow that uh, dream or belief in that they have something to say or something to offer. And in meeting the artists, you're meeting them under so many different circumstances, whether it's in travel or they come in or you've dealt with them for many years. You really get develop some fairly close relationships and some, of course, less so than others. But it's, it's just such an incredible opportunity to deal with some really interesting people who have an interesting perspective on both what's going on and what's going on in their imaginations. It's just a gift. And that's mm -hmm. what I think makes having a gallery so exciting is to get to be a part of or a vehicle for these things to be brought out to the public and to a broader audience. And yeah. I'm so thankful for that opportunity. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And that's something that I, I really connect with, too. From my experience, having been in that position, it's just that if it was truly just getting objects in the mail and selling them, it wouldn't have the heart. It wouldn't have the reward, I think, of totally getting to know the person, the voice, the story, the vision behind these art objects. And that's Absolutely. what gives it the soul and the fire, I think, for sure. Yeah, it's so much more helpful, too, to be able to have a direct conversation. Sometimes it's not possible because they're a continent away or something. And so you have to work with a statement and then piece it together, looking at the work and seeing if you can make the statement relate to what you're seeing in the work, but it's, uh, it is an incredible opportunity and gift. So having been a dealer who's had the opportunity to work in 
antique work, which we tend to think of maybe 1800s and before, modern work with a capital M, which is all through maybe, this is again, not everyone agrees on this, but maybe you know, sort of Goya through the mid-century, mid-20th century, and then contemporary, and then living artists. So you've really spanned all 500 years of printmaking history. How do you find the audience for what is really different work? There are definitely some collectors who are interested in everything, but certainly I would guess that people who are buying a broadside from the 16th century are a bit different than people who are buying, let's say, a Ben Barris that's all about this tiny, tiny writing and, you know, uh, yeah. Absolutely. There are different audiences for different parts of the work and the interactions, again, with collectors, like artists or consigners, they bring such an interesting perspective on the material they're interested in. And I think each period obviously contributes to the next in sometimes unexpected ways. And in the contemporary work now, particularly as you well know, the things that are possible digitally and the appropriation of imagery from anywhere and how to integrate it and to make it interesting and make it their own, the artist's own, is a, is a different thing from this, the early, early work which depended so much on mythology or the Bible mm, or mm-hmm. early writings. And, and so now many collectors, younger ones particularly, are not as familiar with those. As, so the characters that are shown in those images don't mean as much to them and so on. But it's each period has brings something to the overall print world. And, and that, too, is something that makes it so exciting. Mm. Uh, and some people, contemporary people, can relate to earlier things because they're finding something in that work, either technically or just a perspective that's being shown that resonates with them. So it's each of those periods I find incredibly interesting. Some are more predictable, seemingly, in terms of the interests that the artists are pursuing. And um, others, in the early, early work, much of it was at the beck and call of the nobility or the church or something like that, where the directives came from very specific places. And then as the Industrial Revolution came in the early 19th century, there became a middle class and there were many more influences um, or many more interests, varied interests in terms of subjects that they would respond to, whether it was just recording monuments or neighborhoods where they were growing up or whether the figures that were active at the time or making fun of social foibles. Mm-hmm. And now anything is fair game, yep. it seems like, <laughs> the subject. Um, and you know that as well as anybody because you've been so instrumental in giving exposure to these contemporary artists and the things that inspire them or interest them. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I feel like there's so much in there for me. I'm just kind of processing everything you said of it, but considering that there's this, this huge history and when you're in printmaking, 
because of the multiple, because of the fact that these prints last a long time, you know, you, we've, we, I see I'm back in the gallery. I'm like, we have prints. So you have prints now. You have prints hundreds of years old. Absolutely. People think they're so fragile, but they're vulnerable to being abused in terms of the climate, the weather, the moisture, amount of sun and so on. But if it's taken care, if you take care of the work, it can last hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, Albrecht Durer, you've got a piece that looks like it was printed yesterday in some cases where it was part of a portfolio and never saw light. And so it's it's a wonderful thing. And the multiple aspect of it is an immediate connection for so many people. In other words, they run into someone who also has this work by that artist, and it begins a conversation which goes on and on. So yeah. it's... When you're getting work in for the gallery when you're finding pieces that that come in whether through consignment or purchase how much of that is driven by market and how much of it is just your own taste you know what you like what you want to see that's an interesting question in that um, I think each gallery for instance and I'm no exception is a reflection of the person who is making those choices and the baggage they bring or the insight they have, they're going to want to have input on within the pool of material that's being made available to decide which ones they feel have particular merit. And that may not coincide with critics or museum mm-hmm. curators or so on, but within the carefully selected works that you're considering, you as the gallery owner have the right and the duty to make a judgment. And that's what separates one gallery from another. It's the differences in perspective that each of those owners or directors bring to that opportunity to assess the work. And I'm not without blind spots and without biases, I definitely bring baggage and a lot of years of liking things um, to the table. So it's, but that's what distinguishes, I think, one gallery from another. Mm. We're not too interested in pursuing something because allegedly it's particularly saleable and someone says that's a great investment and so on. That is not a part of our picture. We believe in the work that we select and show, but we're not about to market it as an investment that we guarantee is going to double in a few years or that it's going to have this extraordinary gain in value. Mm -hmm. We want you to pick a piece that you love and has meaning for you. And we can supply you with background on the technique and the background on the artist. But it ultimately comes down to you wanting to engage that image and we trying to make it available to you. Yeah. I remember learning that through my time at Davidson and coming in not having been in the art dealing world and then 
understanding that collectors would sort of ask me these questions about, is this going to go up in value? You know, that kind of thing. And yeah, but it's, it's funny. You should talk about your taste and you said your blind spots or something like that, because whenever I jury a show now, I still have you like sitting on my shoulder. Like I will still hear like, oh, it's a tree or, oh, it's like, it's like a, it's some words. I don't think Sam would like that because we spent so much time jurying together all of these invitationals. And that was my first, first exposure. Like I have my voice, but like, I still have your voice. <laughs> I've like taken it on. Well, I hope it's muffled because I think you've developed so much overview and exposure and opportunity to see so much work that it's so educated. I sure would, it would be fun to do a curation together now just to see what you would think. And that bring. would be really fun. We should talk about that. Doing like a Davidson Gallery's Hello Print Friend show, I think could be really fun. So yeah, we'll talk for sure. Okay. So over the past couple of decades, just a couple, just five of them, how have you seen the market change for prints? It's interesting. The When I first got into it and was involved with Roten and Associated American Artists doing all their outreach with catalogs and memberships and so on, it really propelled an awareness, London Graphica, and a number of organizations, awareness of prints that wasn't foremost in Europe, for instance. Prints were considered somewhat of a second-class citizen, where in the States, it was all fresh, new, and the amount of emphasis being put on it through these various organizations, I think, made it get a lot more visibility and become more popular and more respected in this country at that period. Sure, there were abuses, but market people just became interested to see what was going on and so on. But gradually, the market has definitely changed, and it's more from the last 15, 20 or 15, 10 or 15 years, I guess, I think, where the computers and that as a vehicle for exposure and for experiencing work has had a huge impact. I mean, websites have made available available work mm. from anywhere, anytime. And also technically, of course, the changes have come with the digitalization of the images. But I think that's probably the biggest change has been since the computer and phones and iPads and so on, various devices, because of the availability and the awareness. And you can look up anything and check on anything. Right. Where before you had to sort of trust that the dealer was telling you the truth or had the information that you might need. Now you've got multiple resources to double check anything you're being told and to pursue a a direction that you've been introduced to find more work either by that artist or that group of artists and also one thing that i wanted to mention was that i think needs to be addressed in printmaking 
is that it, there needs to be a separation from traditional print processes from digital work. Mm. Because I think that the hand of the artist is what's distinguished. The early work, it was so important, and you could see evidence of how the artist interacted with the plate or the block or the stone or whatever the surface was that they were creating the image. Now, so much can be accomplished digitally, and as they say, manipulated and borrowing this and that to create your image and so on. Or even with in your own work, you can piece things together digitally. And, and, you're, and I think I find it when I go to an international print exhibition a little disturbing to have the two side by side. Mm. I'd much rather that the digital work got its own day and own terminology and its own way of being evaluated where the traditional work has all those things already established over three or 400 years. But the newer directions and capabilities and way of producing the work, I think it deserves its own terminology mm-hmm. and its own way of being evaluated and exposed and so on. And to try and mix the two, I, I don't think it does either one a service. Yeah. Listening to you talk about it, it sounds like the way prints and photographs are separated or something where it's like, it's just, they share certain formal similarities in terms of additioning, in terms of often being on paper and even can take up similar spaces within the art world, but they are distinct processes that, as you say, have distinct ways of being evaluated and appreciated and to try and cross pollinate them it's just going to make it confusing and undermining for both. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Is that not to say that digital is less, it's just really different and you need a different set of standards for it. Exactly. Yeah. And the younger generation is going to give every benefit of the doubt to the current work so that they're not discriminating against it or feeling that it's a lesser thing or so on. And they should, it's just different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Looking back over the last almost five decades, five decades next year, what are some of the highlights, some things, either artists you work with or exhibitions you put on or things that you look back and and feel like they were real high points in the career and the undertaking and the legacy? Gosh, that's an awfully long list. (laughs) The things, the shows that I mentioned, like Footprint, Goodwill Games, the contemporary Mm -hmm. Chinese paintings, the Wood Engraving International, Mesotint Invitational. We did a, a artist stamp traveling exhibition, which toured parts of the U.S. and Canada. Artists working in the stamp format. That was a, a wonderful thing. And uh, the creation in Seattle, for instance, of SADA, I guess, would be a highlight, where there was an event the celebration that happened around Fat Tuesday. And we saw all these people coming down to where we were located in Pioneer Square and and wandering around, going to the different bars and restaurants and so on. And so we thought, well, why can't we get them to come to the galleries and so on? So we did an artist walk and we put these footprints on the sidewalk and Aww. try to encourage them. And in the bars, we had little signs telling them what 
where to go and so on. And then, so the galley dealers saw that that sort of worked. And so then we created First Thursday, which was to combine our mailing lists and promotions and have our shows start on the same first Thursday of the month. And that worked wonderfully well. But we weren't getting the publicity we wanted from the press. One or two of the galleries that had been around the longest or, or had the biggest names would get reviewed, but a lot of them wouldn't. And so we thought, well, maybe we make a publication which will give everyone exposure, equal exposure in a sense. And that's how Seattle Art Dealers Exhibition publication came into being. And we pooled our mailing lists. It varied from 15,000 to 22,000 people. And we sent it to critics around the country as well at the same time. So every month you had your page, part of a page in this publication. And so it really developed into a wonderful monthly vehicle for convincing people that there was an art scene in Seattle. And so that specific to that was a, a wonderful thing. And I'm proud that we created that. Mm. I think that some of the prints that we've contributed to various museum collections, we're proud of those. Yeah. Um, many of the exhibitions that we've put on for individual artists, we've been very proud of, whether it's giving... Leonard Baskin, his last show before mm-hmm. his passing, shows Wayne Thiebaud, Zhao Zizi, who's still going strong as a painter, John Grady, who has a huge piece at the Seattle Art Museum of a cast he took from a tree, a million pieces put together where the whole team created this piece. But he's these artists, they, there's so many that I'm leaving out tons of artists that we've had the pleasure and the honor of working with. But I guess that it's the individual shows, the individual artists, and the connections one's had the opportunity to make with them that are what's been so important and meaningful, at least to me. And so now the gallery is starting to go through a transition, right? You're starting to think about maybe stepping away and seeing what comes next? Yes, I'm thinking that looking toward the end of July as to possibly retiring, although with 18,000 pieces of paper to find homes for, to return, that's not going to be an instant thing. But I'd love to find a person who loves art, specifically prints, but they could obviously put their own stamp on the gallery. But it's in a position where the staff is well-versed and can run the thing more or less without me. (laughs) (laughs) Not as much for the old stuff, but for certainly the mechanics of the gallery doing the exhibitions, taking care of the inventory, all of that. It would just be someone cashing me out. So the debt that I've accumulated over 50 years could be settled. It's not a huge thing, but I'd like to have that cleaned up. And then they could be behind the scenes and involved to whatever degree they wanted. I would be available for a couple of years to help with the transition if they wanted in terms of particularly the older material, or they may want to just abandon the older part Mm. 
and just do contemporary work. So it's there are many forms that it could take, but I would love to sell it to someone who would love for it to go on, who is excited about the material and the opportunity and believes in sort of the mission of a gallery and that it would go on. Yeah. I'm, so I'm o open to and interested to talk to anyone who is seriously interested to think about having a little print gallery. <laughs> <laughs> a little print gallery of 18,000, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to show them every minute all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. But there's a wonderful reservoir of inventory and connections, both to clients and to artists. And you can add to that all the time. I regularly go to print fairs or go online to them and make overtures to new artists that seem to be interesting. You only have to get to see one or two in a print fair situation so it's or a print competition situation, but it leads to all kinds of connections and opportunities for adding inventory and making it your own thing. In other words, as I talked about earlier, it will reflect your interests and what moves you. And you'll have a staff that wants to continue for another five years that is very familiar with the inventory and would be helpful in assessing work that's being brought in, feeling whether it's overlapping with something that's already in the collection or whether it's a wonderful new breath of fresh air into in contemporary work. So it's it's a wonderful, very flexible opportunity to be involved with the arts. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have to keep it as a print gallery. It could also involve paintings and sculpture. It's, it's just wide open. Mm -hmm. But I want to be able to step back and turn it over to someone else who yeah. loves the work. I would, I would hope that whoever steps in would want to keep on the historical work because one of the things that I thought was so wonderful about the space is that you can walk in and you can physically go through history. You can start with a Dürer and move through a Goya and then through an Escher and, you know, I mean, you can then through a Moreau. I mean, you can just in the physical space of the gallery, walk through printmaking time with your own hands, which of course you can't, you're not allowed to do at a museum, you know, but there, like you've That's got cool. boxes, you've got the bins, anyone can just walk in and, and, and look around. And so it's, yeah, I mean, obviously it would be whatever anyone wanted it to be, but my, my stake would be to keep it, of course, is with that unique ability to, to do that. Cause it's, I remember that kind of blew me away coming from art history where I was interacting with all of these objects in museums and then showing up and working in the gallery and, you know, you can hold it. I can hold it in my hand. They're trusting me with it, you know? Yeah. That's true. And I think that it's um, also the doing these international outreach types exhibitions. It means you can see work, a contemporary artist working in Thailand or in Japan or anywhere in the world, really. So it's not only is it the historic opportunity to see it through history, but also to get a sense of 
what things are interesting artists in other continents and other mm-hmm. places. So you helped bring that with the trip, the Mezzotint show and wood engraving and other things when you were at the gallery participating, organizing and traveling to these places. So I think that's still valid, the fact that you can handle these things and see them one next to another. Mm-hmm. Print done yesterday and a print done four or 500 years ago. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on creating a legacy or being at a point in your life and your career where you're really thinking about that they'll at some point in the not too distant future be sort of the the coda on like, okay, like this is what I did with my professional life and and looking back? Not so much. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> I really the daily doing and the immediate connections and the ones of the past are what I have been lucky enough to enjoy and soak up. And I, I'm not looking to have some particular legacy. I've mm-hmm. been blessed and very fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had and meet the people that I've met and worked with a work which is just so incredible every day. Uh, New bodies of work, things, a name you haven't even heard of. You suddenly get to see things and be knocked out by how incredible either the handling of the engraving is or just the range of subjects that no one seems to have treated before. Mm -hmm. It's just those things make it so worthwhile every day. Do you have any advice for people who want to start out and are building something right now. I know there's a lot of students who listen to the podcast, people who love printmaking and are in their early 20s, and they might be thinking, I want to do a gallery or a shop or or anything like that. Oh, gosh. I, I'm not sure that I would have much useful information. It's been a sort of an accrual over all these 50 years. I think that with a Website, you can do a certain amount, and I think that's important. And if you have some built-in connection to a group of people um, through some organization you that doesn't seem to be taking advantage of the opportunities that you see inherent in their situation, you could step forward and say, well, look, I... If we did this and maybe did this quarterly or annually or we worked with these other people that are already doing this and that, that you can make up something by being creative, by thinking creatively, by recognizing an opportunity, either access to a group of people that have a wonderful resource which is underexposed. I mean, I haven't really given too much thought to this, but I do think those would be I I would approach it because if you're young and you've got all the energy and you've got some time and maybe not a lot of resources, working with the givens and recognizing opportunities within those, that's where I think you'll get ahead the quickest and become very influential by how you've directed something that you recognized. Mm. No, I think that's really nice. Yeah. And so 
where can people find Davidson Galleries online and see the work that you're showing? Well, online, it would certainly be the website. That's going to be the best. Or join, joining the mailing list. I mean, we're just davidsongalleries.com. There's no break between Davidson and galleries. It's, so it's just davidsongalleries.com. And that will take you to the website, which will let you know of all kinds of inventory. I don't, we don't have all 18,000 online, but we you have got a lot, eight, though. Eight or 10,000 works probably by category or period or name the artist and so on. But, or if you're in Seattle, come visit us in Pioneer Square, the old part of town. And we'd love to have you rummage through the work carefully. <laughs> 313 Occidental Avenue South. I never forget <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, Sam, it's been so nice to see you again and to talk about old times and even to learn some of the history that I didn't even know even when I was in the ranks. So thank you for taking the time today. Well, Miranda, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> And I wish you continued success with all the wonderful exposure you're giving to print making, printmakers. And just, it's such an incredible world, and you're doing such wonderful work in it. Thank you for that. Thanks, Sam. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Amos Kennedy. And let me tell you, print friends, you are in for a treat. Amos is a living print legend. We talk about his time being employed, not working, at AT&T while making and giving away prints, hanging art shows like it's a crime, and his exciting new project in a pile of bricks in Detroit. You won't want to miss it. This episode like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.